The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the rare coin grading industry. To learn more about their specials and grading tiers, visit www.pcgs.com. This week on the Coin Week podcast, I talked to coin dealer Aaron Burke about the differences between coin shows in the U.S. that center around U.S. coins versus those that center around ancient and world coins. We also talk about issues directly related to the collecting of ancient coins and other topics. Definitely an informative half hour next on the Coin Week podcast. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining me in the Coin Week podcast. Oh, thanks, Charles. Happy to be here. I wanted to talk to you as it is uh, coming up on that time of the year where you're going to be putting together the Chicago Coin Expo. Uh, and we haven't really had an opportunity to sit down and talk about the show. But after I saw the overwhelming enthusiasm that people had in the uh, pent-up excitement for ancient and world coins uh, at the New York show, um, I wanted to ask you what it was specifically that uh, your Chicago show will offer collectors. And uh, why is it that shows that cater to world and ancient coin collectors have such a devoted and enthusiastic crowd? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, I mean, New York is a totally different venue and um, probably the greatest venue for ancient and world coins uh, in the U.S. anyway. Um, But we feel that Chicago is the second runner-up to it. it's going to pull in all kinds of uh, dealers from around the world, like the uh, New York sale does as well. Uh, plus, we've got the Gemini auction going on, and Heritage also has some major auctions and collections coming up as well, which is pretty fantastic. So between the two um, great auctions and um, the amount of dealers that are coming up, uh, we feel it's going to be a great complement to what New York's been doing um, for decades now. Um, as far as these, um, why the popularity of these shows, I would say, you know, in the ancient and world market, it's much smaller than the U.S. market, and so it's a tighter community. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, you know, a lot of ancient dealers and collectors like to get together um, to view each other's inventory. Um, there's nothing that can be – I mean, you can really never get the right feel online than you can in person. Um, and when you bring a lot of great minds together in such a small, uh, tight-knit community, um, it it really does draw a buzz. You know, I think this industry, and I'm speaking for the rare coin industry in the U.S., has done a fantastic job in facilitating the uh, buying and selling of coins uh, over the past few decades uh, with slabbing, with different sites seen and uh, previously site unseen marketplaces. And all of this uh, evolved out of uh, the order and the structure of the rare coin marketplace that existed, you know, in the past. And while I don't think it's uh, entirely possible to completely commoditize a coin, you know, because no two coins are identical. uh, But when you get to uh, ancient coins and world coins, there's so much variety and the possibilities for market perceptible differences between specimens is so staggering that I think for most of this material, one really does need the benefit of seeing the coin in hand. And when I say in hand, uh, for much of this material, uh, especially ancients, the coins are appreciated in hand, in the raw. And this is uh, because 
collectors of this type of material actually want to touch and handle these coins. And, you know, you could be a sophisticated Morgan Dollar collector with a million dollar collection and 20 years of experience uh, assembling a set and, and, and have not one time where you rub the tips of your fingers along the raised elements of the design. But the same is not true at all for most collectors of ancient coins. Yeah, absolutely. And I can speak for ancient coins. Um, and you're completely correct in saying that most of the ancient market uh, will not and does not enjoy having their ancient coins in slabs. Um, I know that there's a certain amount of uh, new collectors out there um, that are used, here in the United States anyway, that are used to um, uh, the slabbing market because it's, it's been around since the 80s and it's just what they're used to buying. And they started out buying U.S. Uh, slabs and so going to ancient slabs um, just makes sense for them because it gives them a, um, some, a little bit of a security blanket. Um, but, you know, what they don't always realize is that, of course, NGC uh, does not guarantee the authenticity, and it's just really just an opinion. Um, I know both of the guys at, um, at NGC, they're both really great academics, but they can make mistakes, and that's why um, they're not going to guarantee their coins. So uh, another reason why it's great for these shows to happen is when you've got great dealers, and we've got a lot of great um, smaller and larger dealers of ancient coins, not only in this country but in Europe, that um, not only guarantee the authenticity of all their coins, but also take us, we'll take it a step further and we'll um, sit down and discuss the history of the coin as well as the artistic quality, which is extremely important because you might have a, a coin that's graded mint state by NGC or a specific dealer, but maybe the artistic strike and the artistic quality of the coin is garbage because guess what? These things were these die cutters. There was good die cutters and there was bad die cutters. So it doesn't really matter if you have a mint state coin. You could have a lousy die and guess what? The value isn't going to be so much. And in fact, you may have a fantastic, wonderful die that is less grade and worth a hell of a lot more than the mint state version. So obviously you come into this profession with a, a huge advantage. Uh, your father Harlan is uh, one of the great ancient coin dealers in uh, U.S. history. But even with the advantage of this uh, house effect, it must have been a daunting challenge for you to get up to speed and become an expert on the range of numismatic items that your firm handles on a daily basis. You know, um, I always take this job, um, like any other job that I would probably have if I wasn't doing this, and that is if you do it long enough, you get a knack for it. Um, people always say it's wonderful to work around these you know, historical pieces of art. And I sometimes, you know, I have to simplify it and say, they're just widgets. Um, and it might be terrible to say, but from a business standpoint, I, I can't get attached to these pieces because I have to sell them. I can't collect. That's one thing my father always taught me is that you cannot collect what you sell because you have to make sure that you can always place the best pieces with your best clients. You can't keep them for yourself. So, um, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years and when I think I've written over, I'm up over 200 catalogs. And so when you produce that many catalogs, you just learn through osmosis. And um, and if you do something long enough, uh, you pretty much get a feel for everything that you're selling and dealing with. Um, I do the same thing with ancient artifacts. So I'm very good with ancient artifacts, and I'm better at, better at that than my father because my father mainly studied coins where I've studied, had to study coins and artifacts. 
and I can look at an artifact and know that it's authentic. I can know what period it is. I can know what it should sell for, what I should buy it for, and what it's going to eventually sell for if I don't sell it in X amount of time. And that's just a matter of the 25 years experience I have. Keeping in mind what you said that you can't collect and then place the best material into the hands of the best clients. So, so how do you maintain that level of enthusiasm that's necessary to make what is sometimes an irrational decision to stretch and pay more for something that's truly special when it walks into the door and then to be able to convey that enthusiasm uh, and knowledge to a collector and say, Hey, this is a piece that's truly special. This is a real opportunity and, and, and do that and be believed by somebody, you know, who's truly devoted. Well, it's, it's actually very simple is, um, you know, my job is collecting. That really is what my job is. My job is acquiring, um, attributing, uh, and placing. Um, the only difference between me and some of my clients is that uh, I try to uh, place things faster than they might place things. Because even a, a long-time uh, collector will get tired of a certain area or um, or will switch gears or will uh, replace a coin that, uh, you know, they don't fancy as much anymore. And in a way, they're no different than we are as far as the dealer standpoint. Um, but every day, people say, do I bring things home? And every day... I um, I say, you know, I'm surrounded by these things, and I find them nice homes, and none of us are really um, owners of these things that we sell or we, that we collect. We are just temporary keepers. And so um, a lot of these things, I, you know, come back through me. And so when I see a piece that I sold 15 or 20 years ago, it's exciting to see it again. It's like an old friend. When it comes to coin shows uh, for ancient and world coins, uh, like your Chicago show, uh, do dealers in this segment of the market behave uh, in the same way that many U.S. dealers do insofar is that when they go to coin shows, they aren't necessarily bringing their best material, but are instead uh, there to do deals with other dealers or to acquire material or to just have a, a light representative sampling of what they sell? Uh, or do ancient and world coin shows offer the great opportunity to buy the best material? It is definitely the best opportunity to buy the, the greatest material of any of the dealers. Um, it uh, gives an opportunity for, uh, for dealers to be able to go into a space and show off what they've acquired. Um, there isn't a whole lot of wholesaling being done, but wholesaling, I kind of feel like, is uh, where shows have kind of um, – uh, shows have kind of – gotten to that point where back in the day, uh, I even remember my father telling me when he'd go to a show in the 70s and 80s, they would start writing invoices and they wouldn't stop writing invoices till the show was over and barely would have a chance for lunch. Now you get, even at the greatest and busiest shows, there's times when it's just completely dead. And dealers have to, um, you know, deal with other dealers to make up um, – uh, you know, there are travel expenses and things like this. Um, but the difference is, is that uh, I think in the U.S. market, you see a lot more wholesaling than you see of retailing. And um, and uh, in ancient coins, uh, we're always looking to sell to the retail client first if we can. Now, do you think this is the uh, unintended consequence uh, of our attempt to uh, commoditize U.S. coins? 
You know, for many dealers, you know, especially the smaller ones, when you look at their table space and just sort of evaluate what they bring, you know, it's the typical U.S. coins and the grades they typically come in. Do you think the attitudes of collectors has evolved over time to the point where maybe our tastes is such that it's not likely that a dealer in a booth space will be able to provide us uh, enough material to satisfy, you know, our idiosyncratic collecting goals? I think it's the internet. I think that, you know, if I had a client who was in Montana and he happened to be on three or four mailing lists and he was able to save his money for those auctions when they came out, um, he had the money to spend. And now that same guy in Montana can wake up and he is inundated with emails. He can bid in an auction every single day anywhere in the world. So it's not a matter of, of uh, you know, uh, if you're going to sell a coin or an antiquity or any object to a collector, but it's hitting them at the right time with the right piece because and there's there there isn't as much loyalty as there once was. Now that's interesting um, because I think with the internet being such an integral part of the buying and selling of coins today, that the need to have an expert uh, represent you has not diminished. You know, if anything, I think it's even more necessary due to the risks that are involved in buying and selling coins online. Now, obviously, you can make yourself your own expert by doing your doing the work. But uh, for many collectors, the expertise still lies in the uh, venue of the dealer. Absolutely. And in fact, I will tell a client um, that I am happy to buy a coin for them in somebody else's stock just to have the opportunity to eyeball it to make sure that it's okay and that they're making the right decision. Because especially in ancient coins, there's no way that I'm going to have every single coin that a collector is going to want, and I'm going to have it for them right then and there when, they, when they're looking for it. You know, it's a big world out there, and there's a lot of different dealers that are going to come up with material that there's no way I can have. But if I can keep my client close to me and be able to help curate their collection, which is really what us dealers are trying to get at, um, then I think uh, you know, that's the goal that we're trying to achieve. Is it still viable for uh, your firm to source material by traveling to Europe and Asia and uh, scouring the auctions there for coins? Or is the U.S. market a, a better and more profitable source for a world coin or ancient coin seller? I think you have to pick and choose um, what shows and what auctions to go to. Um, you know, there's some people in the ancient industry that are very good at just going to auctions and working off a commission. Um, and they do very well with that. Um, uh, there's others that just don't like to travel as much and, you know, and to go to Europe and to spend all of that time and effort, uh, and to be away from your office or home, um, and to, uh, you know, there's definitely advantages to going overseas or going to a show because you're going to see things that you wouldn't necessarily see online, but, um, you have to weigh, um, you know, the risk reward. And collectors, you know, because of the internet and the transparency that it has brought to the marketplace can find out how much coins cost at auction, you know. And one of the costs that many collectors have not necessarily shown a willingness to pay is the carry cost, the travel cost, the purchase cost of the coins. Especially when a dealer has to bear all these costs up front to source the materials from overseas and then pay to get it back. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's also, you know, when when I bid for a client in an auction, 
you're not only getting the representation and making sure they don't make a mistake, um, but also you're importing it in properly. You're taking care of all the custom needs uh, that have to, you know, that, um, you know, a lot of individuals aren't used to dealing with customs, but we do it every day. So um, there are definite advantages to using a dealer, and you'll end up saving money in the long run, even though it may feel like you're spending money on a commission. Have importing issues become more complicated due to the European cultural property laws? It definitely hasn't made it easier, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think if you, you know, our customs, all they want you to do is tell the truth. If you tell the truth, you never lie, and you cross all your T's and dot your I's, there's never a problem. As soon as you start to uh, mess with that system, then you're just um, looking for trouble. Um, but, you know, so if something has an issue, and I know it's going to have an issue beforehand, we just don't. We just don't participate. Um, and uh, and now, you know, places like um, companies like Federal Express that used to clear all the packages, they won't clear them anymore for any coin-related or antiquity-related items. So they uh, so you have to have a private broker to clear all your packages. So, um, you know, that adds some expense because now it's about $150. Uh, at least that's what, I char uh, that's what I get charged by my broker to clear every one of my packages. So um, you have to factor that into the costs of doing business. It seems that these types of laws, while they may be well-intentioned, seem to misunderstand what coins are. Uh, you know, coins are mass-produced objects that were made to travel and to be spent as money. They weren't meant to be kept by their issuing government for time infinitum. So the idea that a coin, you know, produced in the past uh, would fall under the ownership of the current government when it was only a mass-produced widget that some people long ago made and let loose in the wild to be spent, not expecting to get it back. An item that, you know, only exists today because uh, the government didn't get it back over time and melted down. You know, it belies a certain logic. And it's also counterproductive uh, to the effort of the part of this community, you know, to preserve these items for future enjoyment and study means that we must be able to collect them and study them. Well, don't get me started, but you are, so I'm going to answer your question. Um, if you go back, we, you know, we have a massive library here that my dad started um, back in the 60s. Um, and if you go back to old coin syllogies, um, you know, a lot of the hoards were all recorded. And they were recorded um, because nobody cared. <laughs> it wasn't illegal to, to go and dig these things. Uh, governments uh, weren't actively going after smugglers, even though a lot of that stuff was, you know, was being smuggled out back in the 40s and 30s and, and 50s and onward. Um, but it was all being recorded. I mean, I have original paperwork. Um, now this is antiquity-based, but I have original paperwork from the uh, one of the Chicago museums that was working with uh, a collector in the 1930s. And the museum was asking the collector where the dealer in Iraq had gotten some Sumerian objects so they could record the find spot. And they were sharing information between museum, collector, and dealer. So now with all of these rules and regulations, people who are completely against collecting, which a lot of these archaeologists uh, that want things left in the ground, and for good reason, um, they are kind of shooting themselves in the foot because um, there's always going to be probably looting at some level. There has been since the time of the ancients. 
it's just natural that people are going to take things out of the ground and try to sell them. Um, and so to me, it, it makes more sense to try to legalize this. Uh, but unfortunately, you're dealing with broken countries and bad governments. So I don't know really know what the answers are. But um, as far as I'm concerned, we just try to buy legally. And in fact, it's easier for us these days to just buy in the United States. And there's plenty here um, that we can buy legally and not have to deal with the issues that are going on overseas. You know, it's it's been famously said that, uh, you know, in, in somewhat a joking manner that numismatics is greed masquerading as science. But if you really think about it, as much as archaeology tries to understand and take into account different aspects of ancient civilization, there are no archaeological branches that study numismatics at the level that a professional numismatist would. Uh, and, and our understanding of the monetary system of the country comes from numismatic study, not from digging something up under the ground. Numismatics also is a forensic type of science. You know, uh, for the most part, we weren't there. There's no video of people striking those coins. The, the documentary proof is sketchy, even, even in the, the recent past. Uh, but what we have uh, through our skills of pattern recognition and access to different specimens of the coin uh, is a knowledge about where coins came from and how far they spread and when they spread and you know what the metallic composition meant about the economy and their ability to source the product. Uh, we know more about the ancient monetary system and their methods of trade over hundreds of localized cities and, and countries because we study coins and collect them. And, and we appreciate them more than any archaeologist would uh, who dig these out of the ground and throw them into a bucket. Absolutely. And archaeologists only use coins for one thing, and that's to date their site. Beyond that, it's not important to them. Um, I mean, it's important to them to obviously get the right dating of the site, and that's all um, wonderful and a perfect world. But uh, you're absolutely correct. If it wasn't for numismatists and the type of studying that numismatists have done over the years, studying the dyes, writing syllogies, dating the coins, um, you wouldn't have the kind of... Uh, scholarly um, um, works that we have today. One of the most popular types of stories, you know, that we run into in our newswire uh, are stories about ancient hordes being uncovered. I think people always like a good treasure story. But when I think about it, you know, one aspect of it, it's almost unbelievable is that when you think about the millennia, or at least the many centuries that have passed and the ways that we have literally transformed our landscape, how many wars we've fought over the years, especially in the European continent, and uh, yet still so many pockets of money from the ancient world keep turning up. You know, do any of these horror discovery stories surprise you uh, and uh, what turns out uh, being pulled from the ground? Or, or have you essentially come to the point where you can, you know, broadly predict based on where these finds are what it is that's likely to turn up and uh, most of this material not necessarily being collectible or, or material that's going to come to the market and, and affect your business in any appreciable way. It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, what's sad about it is I know uh, if I hear about it, 
it's chances are that it's never going to reach the numismatic um, uh, world to be able to really study these things in the right way, um, unless they're found in the UK. If they're found in the UK, then we're all happy because ultimately there's a good chance that those coins are going to end up on the market um, because of the fantastic treasure trove laws that they do have there. Um, and, you know, you do hear a lot of, of hoards that are found in England because of that. I'm sure there's hoards found all over the world. We just don't hear about them. Um, and that's an unfortunate uh, aspect of, uh, of the world we live in today. Um, but if an archaeologist finds a hoard, it's going to end up in a museum back room. It's not going to end out on display, unless it's some fantastic uh, hoard of Roman gold aurei. Um Other than that, you're just never going to hear about it. It's just going to be in a, a journal that's shared between archaeologists. And left to rot in a box. You know, it won't be curated or cleaned up, just more dusty, dirty widgets. Coins don't sell tickets to museums. Um, you know, big sculpture, big bases, big large things that are impressive do. Uh, if you go and you actually see coins in a museum, they're very small um, and uh, insignificant in the cases. Um, there's only a couple of museums that I've been to that have really done a fantastic job of curating their coin collection. Um, but they're just not important relics for a lot of museums and archaeologists other than the dating. You know, for the museums that do exhibit uh, ancient coins, what's your favorite spots to check out? Oh, for sure in the U.S. would be uh, the MFA in Boston. I mean, they, they're fantastic and they are constantly, had been working on um, a lot of uh, their coin collection even up until, you know, last couple of years and in fact still buying actively. Um, I would say that's probably one of the best in the U.S. that uh, that I've been to. And in fact, uh, the cover of... Uh, of my dad, my dad's book on the 100 Greatest Ancient Coins, uh, which is the Eidmar, was actually a coin that we bought for Boston Museum of Art um, back in the early 2000s, I believe. Well, it's great that they have an endowment, you know, that allows them to build a coin collection. You know, so many museums who that do have coins today do not have funds sufficient to acquire anything new. And you know why that is. <laughs> it's because museums and archaeologists have been against collecting and fighting the collectors that the collectors now aren't giving anything to museums anymore. So it's a trickle-down effect, is if you treat the collectors bad or uh, victimize them, then it's going to affect you in the pocketbook. It's just the nature of things. But at the same time, if these things are not being collected, they'll get lost to history, you know? I don't know if the gates of Ishtar would have survived if they had remained on their original site. Uh, now they are exhibit in a climate-controlled museum in Berlin. When, when they were discovered by Western archaeologists, they were mostly submerged in sand and already in ruins. You know, I, I don't know how many of these antiquities would have survived were it not for collectors. And museums are just collecting on an institutional level. I mean, you look at what happened in Palmyra recently with ISIS. You know, human beings left on their own devices have an incredible track record of destroying precious cultural artifacts. You can't do anything about a broken state. There's just nothing you can ever, there's no rules, regulations, there's nothing. And you know, I've been contacted plenty by, uh, by um, the FBI or by, uh, or collectors or other dealers asking, you know, how many pieces from Syria I've seen, virtually none. Um, if they're being sold, they're being sold to Arabs or Arab countries. I don't think they're coming to the West. And if they are, they're coming to the West with a lot of us dealers knowing about it. Now, I agree with you. 
I, I haven't seen a spike in contraband coins coming to the U.S. market either. And uh, troves of uh, quote unquote new material coming to the market hasn't hasn't really turned up, you know, in the way that the scaremongering uh, sort of uh, put forward that we would be seeing all this uh, stuff that was pillaged and stolen from museums in the Middle East coming to the West. No, um, no. No, it's 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 just another way. It's a it, it's a great platform for the archaeologists uh, to get rid of collecting. So, what are the dates for the uh, Chicago Coin Expo? So, the show is actually um, April 18th through the 21st, and the sh public show hours are actually the 19th through the 21st. Uh, the 18th is going to be a professional early bird uh, preview, which you can pay extra to get into. And if anybody wants more information about the show, all they need to do is go to coinexpo.org. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Aaron, for coming on. Uh, good luck with the show. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate the call. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends. And remember, you can download every episode of the Coin Week podcast for free from the iTunes store. Coin Week podcast will be back this Friday with another new episode, this time with coin dealer Pat Heller. We'll talk about precious metals in the age of Trump. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting. <laughs>